I'm Mark Haywood, and this is Behind the Spine, a podcast which finds learning opportunities for writers in the most unlikely of places. It feels so risky, I think, for the sort of public purse to invest in individuals rather than in things. Backing people feels like a really progressive thing to do. Out with the old, in with the new. Or perhaps there's a better way. Rampantly charging into the era of digital creativity, money these days seems to flow towards the tech rather than the people. But why can't we take a modern approach that also draws from the past? Tom Hyam says we're too focused on creating more platforms, more destination websites, more fancy innovations, more, more, more. Thinking so much about what to invest in rather than who. Tom is the creative director of an organisation called Mediale, an international media arts agency which produces, exhibits and tours new commissions from artists working around the blurred edges of digital art. And I'm delighted to say he's my guest today. Chapter 1. People we love. Working so closely with technology with words like immersive strewn across his organization's website and a strap line like art meet the future. You might think it odd that Tom speaks so cautiously about investing directly in the tech, but without the vision of creatives who can turn that tech into art, what is it all for? Mediale works long-term with a significant roster of artists and artworks to produce high-profile arts events that stimulate new thinking. And like many things... Mediale's life started out as something quite different. And then the pandemic hit. It began in, in 2014, York applied for UNESCO Creative City of Media Arts status. As a part of that application, it's quite an interesting UNESCO designation because kind of in contrast to the World Heritage Site status, it's about kind of future plans and kind of strategic position of, of, of a city and, or of a place. And one of the key projects that was identified in that bid in 2013-2014 was to build a major biennial festival of media arts, which was termed and named York Mediale. That was amounted to the sum total of kind of one shiny page in a proposal PDF with not a huge amount of detail about how it was going to be realised, but just that it was going to be large-scale, global, high-profile, etc. So... Um, Fast forward a bit to 2015 and 2016, a lot of the other stuff that was happening in York around the UNESCO designation had begun. So there was a new guild of media arts was formed, the first, apparently the first new guild in York for several hundred years. And I was working over in Manchester at the time and um, invited over a couple of times to speak at different events and kind of share what we were doing in Manchester and kind of meet people and, and be part of the progress. And I was really struck when I came over of, of the kind of progressive and kind of intelligent perspective that the city seemed to be taking around its development from a position of strength, you know, relative strength, you know, tourist city on the face of it, very well healed, but just underneath the face of it, um, a bit more complicated, but being quite progressive in its plans. So when the job came up for creative director of this new birthing festival that you know didn't quite exist yet um i was really intrigued so so i put a application in and started to build a festival 
and there were there was plenty of local support for it in in the city of York um, from the Arts Council England as well. First one ran in 2018 and was huge and citywide and made, we made a good fist of starting a, a major festival with me constantly trying to manage expectations saying it will take between six and ten years for this to really make the impacts that we're we're trying to make. Then the pandemic happened and it's all shifted a little bit. But to this day now, we've moved towards slightly less, understandably, slightly less local authority support and reliance um, in York, but maintaining a focus on creating and commissioning new work, digital work in the context of a heritage city. So very site specific, very context specific and creating and producing work and supporting artists to do that here and then taking it kind of worldwide to to tour and share as best we can. So so it's kind of a year round production and, and curating organization now rather than just a, an event, so to speak. I love your strap line, which is art meet the future. And on the basis that none of us knows what the future holds, that must be quite a challenge to, to try and unpick some of the trends. But if I think about one particular piece of art or one ongoing piece of art because it's growing all of the time um british artist um kit monkman who's created people we love which is an extraordinary achievement and for people who haven't heard it i'll try and and probably fail to describe it but it is essentially what started in york and then moved as i believe to pittsburgh is an exhibition of photographs of people looking at photographs and or images of people they love whilst meditating on their relationship with those people and on the surface that sounds like something you may or may not be interested in but when you see it visually it is extraordinary in terms of the impact that it has and i think it's because there's very little if any context to who the people are and what the relationship that they have with each other. And to look at someone looking at someone they love without context is so extraordinary that you get drawn in and you're trying to fill in the gaps. Maybe you're trying to understand what the relationship might be. And then I went one stage further because I think that what Kit is trying to do is invite me to do this, is I thought about who might I look at if I were a part of this, if it came to London, for example, and, you know, you created another 125 or so of these photographs, who would I choose? Because if there's no context, I might choose something a little left field, a little unexpected, potentially, because it's so private. The experiences that I'm having are so that these people are having is so private and, and me watching them, I feel like I'm intruding in some way, but I can't help but look. And, I, and it made me think, who might I look at and what does love mean? Because you can love in many, many different ways. Is it a love that lasted? Is it a love that was lost? Is it a fleeting romance that happened years ago that you've convinced yourself was love? It, you know, it's really extraordinary. And, and I'd love to just spend some time talking about people we love because without that context, your mind is just so alert and so on fire trying to comprehend what you're looking at. Could you just tell us a little bit about that, um, about that collection? Sure. Um, one tiny correction is that it's not photos you're looking at, it's videos. Video. So it's ex extremely high frame rate, high resolution 
video portraits of people and they the experience is for the sitters for the the people who've come to sit for the piece um they bring with them a, a photo and we project that photo via a pepper's ghost kind of trick essentially right in front of the camera lens so they are staring right down the barrel of the lens and as you as an audience member when when the work is finally exhibited you're staring at somebody staring at you <laughs> although that person is staring at somebody that they love you're invited into that person's psyche really you're you're invited to kind of speculate where who they're looking at to to really feel every there's something really magical about even the portraits of the kind of less expressive people because some are some people are in floods of tears some people smile and, and kind of shuffle a lot some people really lock in and and it, it's a really interesting experience watching the the different sitters how they kind of settle through the through the period because there's a there's a sort of meditative guided meditation that we take people through to prepare them for it so that they're kind of they shed the sort of self-consciousness of staring at a camera a little bit but the the people who are less expressive and almost less physical and give less away are almost more fascinating to me you know the slightest twitch of of a vein on the neck or of, of an eye or, or it just is something quite quite remarkable and I think I mean Kit Kit Monkman is a an incredible artist, wonderfully intelligent um, human being who is based in York. And um, ever since I started the Mediali, was desperate to find a way to work with him. And he he used to make uh, previously and still does actually. He he runs a company as an aside. He runs a, a special effects a visual effects company who are doing a lot of the visual effects for the new Game of Thrones series um, in York. So that's one side of his portfolio previously he's done kind of rock shows for you know major bands you know different kind of projections big scale stuff um, and he's made artworks involving cranes and projectors and interaction and all this but people we love is so restrained and no less powerful as a result it's about ego for him and it's about removing the artist and taking away his own ego from the work so that the work is only created by the the audience member or the 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 viewer in between them and the and the sitter it's a fascinating work in in that i mean how how often if you're walking down the street how often do you form an emotional connection with a stranger you know how often do you do you really calmly without feeling self-conscious inappropriate or odd um, how often do you really look at somebody and there's something about how distracted and how lonely and how in our devices, in our phones, we all are that, that I don't know, it, it kind of makes it a really shocking experience to do that a really subtle, but but kind of shocking experience that's that brings up quite a lot of emotion. I, I went to see it with the, the chair of our, our board when we first, um, we first exhibited the work. And I was I was standing near him and I tried to lean over and do a bit of a chit chat. Um, and he was like, just can you just leave me alone for a bit? And he's a very lovely bloke, but not not enormously emotionally kind of ostentatious usually. But he he was really moved by it, and and it really has that power that there's tons of complexity to and depth and richness to to where the works come from and and why Kit's made the work. But actually, it's one of the most accessible things I've ever made because all you're invited to do and all your all is, that is required of you as an audience member is to 
look upon somebody who is looking at a picture of somebody that they love. You never find out who that is. That's it. There's there's so much to unpick. And and first of all, what you said about how often do we do we truly look? And for the people that we're looking at, looking at this image or looking at you know look, looking at someone they love, it may be the first time that they have ever really looked for that length of time at that person because it's actually it's very emotionally demanding to look someone in the eyes for that length of time it's really hard uh, and if you've never done it you find yourself looking away you you might be embarrassed you might shuffle but added to that i often think that the easier or the simpler something looks the the more work has gone into it and and writers have a tendency to overwrite and, and artists can often have a tendency to put too much of themselves into a project so for, to hear you talk about removing the artist's ego and just let the work speak for itself is is fascinating because i mean kit could have done this very very differently and it would have had a different impact, not necessarily the same impact, but it would have stripped it, I think, of the intensity of what the audience is experiencing. Because when you remove instruction and context, you have to work hard to find your own truth in it. And I think that's so brave and so powerful that it is, as you describe, us looking at people, looking at other people. And yet, actually, the huge amount of work that's gone into that means that it works beautifully. And it is so intense. And I found myself, even though I'm only looking at still images when I look at the website, I found myself having to look away. And I got the same impact recently watching The queue and people... <laughs> filing past her majesty's coffin as she's lying in state that even though i don't know these people i never met the queen just watching them watching her i am weeping as mm -hmm. i'm doing and i wasn't prepared for it and and i've seen it often enough now for it to have some effect but not the same effect but when you catch it raw for the first time as i did with people we love it really gets you. And I was very, very surprised by how deeply I connected with complete strangers. Mm. Yeah, there's, there's a fascinating um, link there, isn't there? Almost that I don't know whether it would be fair to say that the Q situation and the Q um, drama that's been unfolding, you could suggest, perhaps slightly belligerently, but you could suggest that the Q is almost nothing to do with the Queen. And the people we love, when, you, when you're looking upon somebody, at some point early in looking at them, you, you wonder who they're looking at. And then it doesn't matter at all. You're, you're not looking at, you're not thinking about who they're looking at. You're thinking about the person, the person that's giving of themselves in that, in that moment. So it's, it's, um, it's a fascinating kind of spectatorship. And, and in, in terms of the complexity stuff, I think digital artists and artists of, of, of all stripes, of all kinds, kind of suffer from that that anxious overcomplexifying, um, particularly with digital, because digital provides the ability to add more, like more, 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 bigger, louder, whizzier, bangier, you know, and, and actually sometimes that, that overcomplexity is, is, is used to, I'm sure um, you see this a lot in writing, used to hide kind of a, a lack of confidence in the, the central idea or in the central kind yes. of points being made, you know?
absolutely yeah you do and often the bravest writing is the writing that demonstrates the most restraint which i think is what kit has done here there are more ways than one to skin a cat i, I would i would definitely acknowledge like in the sense that I think we're always drawn kind of intellectually and maybe like slightly simplistically to sort of a minimalism, like strip away, strip away the fat and get to the core. But I have worked in the past with um, one artist of stands out in my mind. Um, it's a composer, visual artist, kind of polymath called Samson Young from Hong Kong. I talked at length to him about his process, but he's a maximalist. He, he absolutely, he, he said to me, I was the producer on a, fairly large scale project that ended up being um, a radio drama, a live performed and recorded and broadcast radio drama, and then a gallery show from the sort of accoutrements of the, of the radio drama. It was a, it was a ridiculous project, but brilliant. But he, he said to me, so as, as my producer here, Tom, I'm going to make your life hell. And I apologize in advance because I like to keep everything up in the air spinning for as long as possible. You tell me a deadline, I'll break it slightly. You tell me again, another deadline, I'll break it slightly. And then I'll let everything land. And, and it, I, I want to keep it in the air for as long as I can, because the later it lands, the better it is for me. And, it, and that was terrifying as a sort of <laughs> on the logistics side, as you can imagine. But, but he, 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 he benefits from his work is, is built around that. It's, it's fascinating. Yeah. So there's two schools of thought, either take it all out or put it all in. Put it all in, yeah. Kitchen yeah. sink as well. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> What's the future for this particular project, People We Love? I know it started in York, it then went to the US. Is it is it done now or is it going to travel further? No, it's traveling further. Yeah. So um, at the end of uh, September, it opens in a festival in Denmark, in Viborg. We have a relationship between York and Viborg that's, that's really exciting. And then it's going to show again at Aesthetica Short Film Festival in York in November. And then it will be showing in the spring, a couple of conversations still ongoing, but um, we're very, very keen to, every time it shows fully and properly, there's a new set of, a new phase of recording done and, and more sitters. And the more places and times, it feels like a really interesting snapshot of a place and a, and a time, um, but to build it and build it and build it and do more with the online kind of version of it and the kind of uh, library of of portraits that that grow. So yeah, it's definitely going to continue to to see the world. Chapter two: A portrait in time and place. A cursory search online will bring up multiple impact analyses of COVID's impact on the arts, the devastation wrought on the industry. And while empty galleries, closed theatres and abandoned museums certainly brought significant economic downturn, it's far too easy to blame the pandemic for all of the industry's problems. The truth is, it was suffering long before COVID. Its problems were just accelerated and exacerbated by it. But despite the horror, despite the tragedy, despite the millions of lives lost, we've also learnt a great deal and gained from the pandemic, primarily through our newfound ways to connect and a new appreciation of what's important. The question is, will these lessons be forgotten over time? I saw something recently, I can't remember which article it was uh, or which research report, but it basically, one of the kind of key findings or summaries was, Digital didn't fix everything in the pandemic, 
you know, look, digital didn't work was the, was the kind of tone of it. And it just, it struck me that like, oh, wow, we're still, we're still in that place, kind of the relationship between technology and, and culture and technology and the arts is something that, that I'm kind of, kind of deeply embedded in. And it just, it struck me how far we've still got to go. There was, um, during the pandemic, obviously, there was an amazing amount of stuff, a, a kind of crazy amount of stuff that was made accessible, distributed and broadcast online. And, you know, one of, one of my favorite artists in the world, Steve McQueen, um, was doing a lengthy, interesting, nuanced interview on behalf of one of the major London galleries. And instead of it being £35 to come into the auditorium, it was free on a social media platform. You know, and that was, I was, I was delighted about that, you know, obviously, you know, not being in London, traveling up and down and a hotel and a ticket and stuff. That's, that's a few hundred quid um, to, to see that talk, AKA, you know, inaccessible. And that was wonderful. But there's been a real snapback in my experience of, of people trying to save or, or climb back towards the business models that were in place and possibly already under a little bit of pressure that there's a real difference between the cultural sector and the parts of the cultural sector that understand and engage with the way people live their lives versus the cultural sector who who feel as though clinging on to a sort of pre digital consumption methodology you know there's a real a real generational and kind of ideological difference there I, I still place enormous value in physical presence, in theatre, in even in film, um, in the visual arts, of course. And oftentimes, if a show it has a really expansive digital platform, I'd still try and pursue getting to the physical show because it, that's what it's that's what it's made for. But but I do think the the sector has has some some reckonings coming. There's there's some real traditionalism and real old fashioned kind of conservatism within within the arts in the UK that that's quite pervasive and yeah I think we've got a long way to go undoubtedly I mean if we think about lack of inclusion lack of equal opportunity lack of equal pay things like me too things like actors finding out they haven't been cast by reading the press release of all the people that have you know it's just as an industry we're not doing enough and to go back to the word you used earlier, there is a lot of ego in the industry that we would be well served by getting rid of completely, because I think that would help us. But we do have something of an opportunity to reset. We have a new prime minister, we have a new cabinet, we have a new approach at the Department of Culture, Media and Sport. And I wondered whether, is there an agenda that we could pull out of our back pocket and, and give them that that might that might help because, as I said earlier, you know, London and New York, two very different scenes. We hear a lot about the phrase levelling up, but I don't see much evidence of any levelling up happening, whatever that means. And I think that's part of the problem. I think we're not entirely sure what we mean by levelling up. That sounds like us saying we know there's a problem. We're just not entirely sure how to fix it. Yeah, I was... (laughs) Again, a controversial topic, but I, I was at a talk, um, a Festival of Ideas talk, which is a festival based in New York. Um, lots of really excellent writers and and thinkers speak at it each year. Um, and there was somebody fairly senior in, I think, in the department for levelling up or in uh, Northern Powerhouse. I don't know what the difference is, really, or, or where that, that agenda's gone, but um, who kind of quoted this 
kind of fundamental position, which I've since heard a few times from different kind of um, government ministers in interviews, saying that the whole premise behind levelling up is that talent and skill is equally geographically distributed, but opportunity isn't. Now, <laughs> I don't want to sound like extremely right wing because I'm not, but that isn't true. I don't think. What that ignores is network effects, hubs, conurbations, social factors, as well as kind of opportunity factors that there is not the same density of or kind of quality of digital art practice in Barrow as there is in Birmingham, you know, and, and by that leveling up kind of ideology, they say that there is. And, and I just was blown away by, are we really in a situation where DCMS and then by proxy Arts Council are encouraged to take the amount of Marmite that is the amount of public funding that that we can spend on the arts in the UK and just spread it evenly across the whole country. Is that the philosophical kind of culmination of what we've figured out would be the best way to, to support the country and the, the creative sectors within it? Because it feels like the least uh, or, or a, a not too negative option rather than a constructively positive option. And I, I, I don't know, I don't know how that shifts other than us being the arts is constantly swung on this pendulum from trying to demonstrate its value and its impact in the world through economic sort of instrumental hard number kind of measures hotel nights jobs created new exports whatever it may be swinging from from that being a kind of de rigueur kind of way to value culture all the way through to qualitative kind of health and well-being and aspirational outcomes that are much more yeah, qualitative rather than rather than economic almost. And we seem to swing sort of with the political winds from one to the other, where where I've spent years developing fest festivals and events talking about hotel nights. If we wanted to generate lots more hotel nights, we just set up another Premier League football club or, you know, economically putting a Lady Gaga concert on will generate robustly a certain amount of um, traveler and, and kind of tourist income for a for a location it will cost an enormous astronomical amount of money but it will generate an enormous astronomical amount of money whereas if we're talking about the arts what are we really how are we going to judge the opera abstract performance art under the same remit and under the same premise as a stormzy gig like it, it blows my mind that we seem to be trying to jam those things together and not admitting that opera is incredibly expensive, culturally very valuable, historically very valuable, and we should stop trying to pretend that it's the same as an emerging artist's kind of programme for BBC introducing or, you know, it's a weird, um, it's a weird situation we've got ourselves in, not, not saying that there are any easy answers, but yeah. I read an article recently that was talking about the fact that Wembley Stadium makes far more money off pop concerts than it does off football matches yeah like and not the numbers aren't even close tom they're just mm. astronomical so i think your lady gaga reference is a great one because that will generate much more money and much more hotel nights than you know england yeah. than the lionesses well, um, well I'm, I'm not a i'm not a theater practitioner or a theater expert but pantos pantos yeah. 
in particularly in theatre, I mean, also in London, but particularly in kind of regional theatres, generate somewhere between like 30 and 80% of the annual turnover of those places. So in, in, in terms of the political impact that we, we can we can make, it feels to me like there's a massive opportunity if we properly value the quality of the culture and art that comes out of this country, the writing, the music, the performance, the, the digital creativity. We're so good at it, but we have this assumption that that just will just happen anyway. Artists will find a way. Whereas it feels like a bit of a USP for a country that doesn't really manufacture very much anymore, doesn't really <laughs> lead any other industrial out of Europe, post-Brexit, kind of what is it that we offer the world? Perhaps it's cultural dynamism and cultural kind of quality. Chapter three, backing people. As we mentioned at the beginning, Tom is a big believer in investing in people, not things. When we think of art in numbers with dollar signs in our eyes, we're simply missing the point of it and also of its value. So how do we spread the Marmite, as Tom puts it? Well, we could do a lot worse than helping young, skillful people with ambition, talent and vision to develop their product and their art, rather than messing around with hotel nights. When we invest in people, we invest in tech and the economy by proxy, and innovation actually happens more rapidly. It reminds me of, um, you know, Mariana Mazzucato, her kind of entrepreneurial state kind of thesis of, you know, the, the, the iPhone doesn't exist without government money, like federal US money. Touchscreen technology doesn't exist without federal investment. You know, there's a cluster of businesses around a small group of individuals in Cardigan Bay in, in mid Wales, the middle of Wales on the coast, that now globally one of the most successful, most highly respected jeans brands is there. Hyatt jeans or Hyatt jeans. Um, the Do Lectures are there, um, Howie's are from there. And it's basically a rural Welsh seaside town with, I don't know, 10,000 people. And there's a, there's a bunch of young people who've entrepreneurial, creative, climate conscious people. But we, it feels so risky, I think, for the sort of public purse to invest in individuals rather than in things that there constantly has to constantly has to be a commercial rationale and sort of business model even if we we all know that a business model is made up so early in the phase of an idea backing people feels like a really progressive thing to do be it through UBI be it through kind of northern european some of the northern european kind of models around um artist wages essentially would be transformationally positive i think and it just feels like a different a different way to do it a different thing to try I think on that, you could take all of the Arts Council England money and allow every single young person free lifetime access to the do lectures. And I think you could transform the industry overnight because I have learned a spectacular amount from, from that. And the delivery is extraordinary because it shouldn't work. It goes against everything we know about TED Talks and the use of technology. But the underlying message is so incredibly compelling that it makes you step back, stop, breathe, think, and then go, oh, actually, th this is amazing. This is, this is extraordinary. So I hadn't worked out that that was where everyone was based, but that's an extraordinary collective hub that you wouldn't have heard about, right? Pro probably because we only hear about London 
and exactly. the Royal Opera yeah. House. I'm, I'm sure I'm, I'm kind of smoothing over a few complexities, but yeah, there's a small cluster of really excellent clothing brands and, and product brands um, all around Cardigan Bay in Wales, which just goes to show, maybe that contradicts my point about talent being evenly distributed, but 20 miles north or south of that on the Welsh coast, there isn't that cluster of creative hubs. So if, if, if we're taking a kind of leveling up, sort of spread the Marmite equally situation, that ignores the cluster that has formed around those individuals in that particular location, which is basic network science. It's not kind of, it's literally not rocket science, it's network science of how hubs and, and clusters work and how human geography works, you know? So there's, there's definitely something to be said of that, but I don't know, in terms of cultural investment, we're so lucky. That's another thing I should should highlight is is that we talk in the arts in the UK about about the diminishing kind of or increased fragility of funding and and there's less public money around etc cetera, etc cetera. but but we are in comparison internationally to 99% of places incredibly lucky still we're perhaps on a trajectory that is slightly worrying but we are not we are not by any means uh, done yet we've got to make a better case i think uh, ourselves as kind of cultural practitioners and people within the arts we've got to make a better better case for for investment and for securing kind of public funds as we go forward as well. It's, it's on us. In terms of art meeting the future, Tom, what can you tell us about projects that are coming up for Mediale? We've got one really exciting one, which is a project in the Northwest with an artist called Matthew Rosier, or Matt Rosier, who is an incredible trained architect slash artist who, who works with projection, but works with projection in in one of the most kind of nuanced, socially conscious ways you can imagine. And it's a project exploring the working class histories of um, the navvies who dug the Manchester Ship Canal. And um, oddly, as a sort of digital arts company, we've um, managed to secure some historic England support for that project, which is really exciting. And we've also got kind of major, major landowners on board as well. So the Manchester Ship Canal, i.e one of the key factors in the birth of the industrial revolution was dug by these predominantly men predominantly irish um known as the navvies in incredibly harsh unyieldingly tough conditions um and we're going to be doing a major project over there in the late autumn early winter which is really exciting in terms of other projects we have a key part of what we're doing is is talent development because not having a sort of major annual festival of any sort or biannual festival, we support a kind of roster of artists of different scales and of different shapes and sizes, I guess. But behind that, there's always artist development programs going on. And, and our current artist development sort of track is called Immersive Assembly. So it's bringing together artists from usually from the UK partnering with a with an international cohort. So that's that's currently going on with with a, a Danish cohort of artists. And in, in the spring, we're very excited to be doing our next version of that with with another international cohort. So so there's always ways to to gain support and 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 continue. There isn't a lot of institutional kind of infrastructure for supporting the kind of artists that we make work with, digital artists and and kind of creative technologists, I guess. And they kind of often fall between the cracks. So we're trying to provide a bit of a a bit of a resource and a bit of infrastructure for that kind of practice um, over the longer term. That's our that's our goal. Well, we wish you well with people we love in Denmark and all of your other projects. It's an absolutely 
vital part of not just the arts, but of this country that we help these people get their work into the hands of the public. We've said on this show uh, a thousand times, the value of art is whether it founds an audience, not how much the audience pay, not how big the audience is, but whether it finds an audience. And I think that organizations like yours certainly help us do that. Tom Hyam, Creative Director of Mediali, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much. Absolute pleasure myself as well. Thank you. Conclusion, a massive thank you then to Tom Hyam for today's episode. And to recap, what have we learned? Try taking yourself out of your art. Remove your ego and allow your audience to engage and interact on their own terms. Start small, perhaps, and let your readers or your viewers write the next chapter of your novel or decide the fate of your character in that next scene. Then, think bigger. In a world where more creative options are open to us than ever before, sometimes the most innovative thing to do is to keep it simple and show restraint. Then again, as Tom says, there's more than one way to skin a cat. You could also try throwing it all in, including the kitchen sink. And this one goes to the people who control the purse strings. Invest in people and address the digital divide. As Tom says, we don't need more inadequate platforms. We need creatives who can lead the way. It's got to be about skills, skills and skills. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Haywood. You can get in touch directly at info at behindthespine.co.uk. We'd love to hear from you. We're also on Twitter and Facebook as at Behind the Spine and Instagram as at Behind the Spine Podcast. Check out the show notes for an additional information and a full transcript of this episode. Additionally, sign up to the email newsletter for updates about our new exclusive live and in-person residency at the Groucho Club in London. These events are not recorded and not repeated and they'll put you, the audience, both behind the spine and in the room. If you'd like to go on the guest list, please drop us a line. Goodbye for now, stay safe, and keep writing. This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk. 